No one told me. It's always going to be just out of reach. Wow, do these people know something I don't know? Like the, the more hours I spend talking in public, the more chances I'll say something wrong and get in trouble. The good girl archetype was going to be the ruination of the world. It was this wake up, cosmic wake up. Just walking around exclamation points jumping off me at all times. I, just, I love messy humans. <laughs> you wanted this life. <laughs> this is your fault. You chose to do this. This is the Art of Asking Everything podcast. I am Amanda Palmer. This week's guest is Jamil Zaki, starring in an episode that we are calling Tuning Your Empathy Fork. There are some people that you meet on this bizarre planet who just resonate immediately. And I met Jamil in such a weird way. I was at a strange, fancy dinner for some kind of charity or organization or another, I don't even remember, at South by Southwest. This would have been March of 2019. And we spied each other across the room. And he was like, Amanda Palmer, I think I've seen your TED Talk. I read your book. You're the one who talks about asking and empathy and compassion. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> who are you? And he looked at me and he was like, I'm Jamil Zaki and I'm going to be your friend or something like that. It, it turns out that uh, Jamil has written a book called The War for Kindness and he's not just like a fan of empathy and compassion and that sort of thing. He actually studies it and lives and breathes it at Stanford University. He's a professor of psychology there and he's the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Laboratory. It's his job to figure out why people are or aren't nice to each other. <laughs> He's got a TED Talk called Building Empathy, How to Hack Empathy and Get Others to Care More. And when I met him, I was just starting it on this podcast. And as it turns out, Jamil was my very first podcast interview. And weirdly, one of the only ones that I've done over the phone, but it was still wonderful. And when I talked to him, I was just on the precipice of putting out a poem called Empathy is Nothing, about my experience of writing about the Boston Marathon bomber and getting yelled at, and I was scared. And Jamil sort of became my magic feather going into that experience. Our conversation was so good. Please welcome to the Art of Asking Everything, empathy expert, Jamil Zaki. So one of the most striking things that I found about your book, and, and, and you really, you open up with it at the beginning, is that empathy, it's like a muscle that you can exercise. Yeah. And like so many other things in life, what you pay attention to and give time and energy and what you nurture is what will grow. And it's so nice, like so many other things, again, in our world right now, from sleep to addiction to relationships, we now have hard science to support what we've always kind of intuited, or at least what we may have intuited. What can you tell people about what your research and what science have now told you about our capacity for change and growth when it comes to how empathetic and kind we can be to other people? The view that we can build or grow or flex our empathy 
is actually part of a larger movement in the sciences towards a recognition that we are more malleable than we once thought, right? I mean, it was once thought that our brains basically freeze in place uh, like they're like they're frozen in amber uh, after we turn 18 or whenever, whenever they stop maturing. It was thought that however smart you are when you are born is how smart you'll be when you die. And there's nothing that can change that. And it was thought that there's some people who care and some people who don't. And those people will be, you know, saints and psychopaths respectively. And that's just how it is. All of these things have some genetic component to them, right? I'm not in any way saying that we can turn into absolutely anybody, irrespective of our starting point. I'm not saying that we can just go anywhere from anywhere, but evidence from across brain science and the social sciences is now pointing to the fact that we can change more than we thought. And that's certainly true of empathy. And that's great news all around, by the way, for all people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think so. I mean, it's also, you know, it can be, tough news, right? Because there are circumstances that can erode things that we think are unerodible. Um, I I write in the book about the tragedy of institutionalized children in Romania, right? In the 60s and 70s, there was an entire generation of kids who were raised in orphanages and they were fed, but that's basically it, right? They suffered what's known as relational privation, meaning that they were basically never talked to, never hugged, never held. And they, many of them... They were written They were written off as human beings. Absolutely. And never given a chance to be human insofar as humanity is connection with other people. And they became, in essence, um, or developed some of the traits of psychopathy, right? Almost mm. became psychopaths through their experience. So the fact that we can change can be bad news if we're changing in ways that that hurt us or that cause us to hurt other people. I suppose the other way that all of this neuroplasticity and great news heralding that everyone can change is probably very frightening to certain people who have just allied with a worldview that certain things are immutable, emotionally immutable, educationally immutable, that like, this is just the way it is. This is the way I've always done it. Even if these people are really intelligent, it might be discomforting to them to know that actually, if they wanted to put the work and effort into, say, becoming more empathetic or changing emotionally, that's there for the taking. And that in itself is just probably really distressing for people. Oh, yeah. I mean, potential is scary because it's the unknown and it's also the unknown that we control. So in a way, you know, hearing that you're autonomous, that you have agency, that you have a choice about who you become requires you to take ownership over those choices and what they produce. And that's, that's scary. The part in your book where you talk about fixists versus mobilists, yeah. which is actually such a great couple of terms that I'm going to carry them into my <laughs> life in whatever way I want, because I definitely am friends with some fixists and some mobilists. But can you just from a sort of research science standpoint, can you explain what this means? And can you tell the listeners about like a couple of 
the studies, I mean, and these studies are fascinating and especially how malleable people are just and how suggestible they are. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Of course. Yeah. I mean, the terms fixist and mobilist actually stole from, of all places, geology, right? Because it was for a long time thought that the earth was still, that it was fixed. And I don't mean that it didn't move in space. That was an older scientific revolution, but that that the ground beneath us relative to the Earth's core was fixed. And people thought that forever until about 100 years ago. And there was this guy, Alfred Wegener, this geologist who sort of said, wait a minute, why do the Americas, like especially South America and Africa, why do they look like puzzle pieces? You know, is there any possibility that maybe the continents move? And people laughed him out of the field. Uh, he died, uh, you know, in ignominy, sort of with the thought of as having these weird half-baked ideas. And the people who defended the idea that the earth was still were known as fixists. And he was, and the people who agreed with him were mobilists, people who argued that even when we can't see things moving, like the very ground underneath our feet, it can still move. So I borrow those terms for psychology because I think that a lot of psychology's history has been pretty fixist, right? We've thought that our personalities and, again, our intelligence and our character are just there with us, kind of hardwired into our brains and hard-coded into our genes. But increasingly, there's evidence that all of those things can change, right? So uh, one example is therapy, right? People who go to therapy become like less neurotic. And, that, and, and that's, that change lasts for years after they undergo therapy. People who, uh, for each year of education that people, uh, that people experience, their IQ rises by one point and those changes last their entire lives, right? These are things, again, our personality and intelligence that people thought were fixed, but now there's mm -hmm. ample evidence that they wobble around and that we can wobble them around on purpose. And if there's any takeaway to this podcast after people listen to it, I would hope that we can arm them with, you know, maybe a greater understanding of not just what change is possible in them, how much uh, birth do we give to other people mm. in terms of our beliefs about them and their capacity for empathy? There's a hilarious study that you cite in the book about our assumptions about gender, yeah. like our assumptions about women are really, you know, they're like warm and much more warm and compassionate and empathetic than men. And, you know, and men are, you know, more hardwired to be this and that way. But then there's this great study. Do you know the one I'm talking about where people are incentivized with money? <laughs> you know, one way of talking about mobilism, right, is that we can change over time. Another way is that we make choices about what we want to feel in the moment. That includes empathy, right? I think that we turn our empathy up or down depending on our needs and desires and fears and hopes in the current moment. And a great example of that is what happens when you motivate people to feel empathy. So as you say, there's this stereotype that men are just in, constitutionally incapable of empathizing and that they'll never be able to be as good as women at it no matter what. Um, but there, there's a set of studies where people just incentivize men in different ways. In one study, they pay people um, for getting other people right. Right. They, they have folks listening to other stories and then see how accurate they are about their emotions. And, and if you don't pay people, men do worse 
than women. But if you do pay people, not only does everybody do better, but men uh, in particular close the gender gap. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a sad state of affairs where uh, that and leads to a darker discussion about capitalism. <laughs> oh my God, yes. But you know, I mean, did, you, did you see, Amanda, the follow-up study that they also did where they had a group of heterosexual men and told them just that women find sensitive dudes attractive. <laughs> and that yeah. also closed the gender gap. So it doesn't have to be uh, capitalism. No, it's either sex or money. <laughs> the two, the two giant biggest carrots of all time. So, like, just thinking about what you said, you know, someone who's paid professionally Mm. to empathize is a a therapist. You know, someone who's paid to sit in a chair and really be present with and pay attention to somebody else's story and pain and not necessarily be sympathetic, Mm -hmm. but to be empathetic and to be able to help someone through. And in some cases, you know, a shrink's job may actually be best done by detaching a little bit and not necessarily sitting and crying with the patient as, you know, we might imagine. But you talk in the book about burnout. And compassion exhaustion, yeah, compassion fatigue, you call it. And I mean, there are these fantastic stories in the book about the people who work in the NICU. And I think about this all the time when I think about people like EMTs or first responders, people who are literally seeing dead bodies every day, watching children die. What have you learned in the research? What are the tools that these people have to cope with the trauma that they need to sort of swallow and regurgitate on a day-to-day basis? How do they deal? Oh, gosh. I mean, sometimes not very well, right? I mean, there's not for nothing. Burnout is an epidemic. It's risen dramatically among caring professionals over the last five years. You mentioned the NICU um, that I sort of visited. That's also the NICU where my first daughter lived for the early weeks of her life. People, by the way, who don't know what a NICU is, it is the neonatal intensive care unit. It's the ICU for teeny premature babies, a rough emotional place to be that you, Jamil, were in with your daughter. I say in the book that if sadness were light, you could see NICUs shining from space, right? I mean, they're just the saddest oh, places I've ever, it's the saddest place I've ever been. And, and obviously for my family, it was a tragic place because uh, our daughter, you know, suffered a stroke at birth. And so we were there, you know, just wondering if she was going to live and what her life would look like. I mean, I'm happy to report that three and a half years later, she's thriving. But, um, but you know, at the time, it was, it was such a, it was the hardest moment of, of our life. And we were surrounded by other people who were in the hardest moment of their lives. And then th- these caregivers who were just... I mean, empathic superheroes. I've never received empathy like that from strangers. And I, you know, after getting out of the fog of our own family's struggles, I just developed this deep curiosity. How could they possibly do this every day? And, um, you know, I, I saw at that unit a lot of people just who work there just really struggling to. Uh, I mean, not struggling to care for the people there. They were so preternaturally good at that, but struggling to care for 
their own families, struggling to care for themselves. A lot of answers coming out now of research about how people can deal with emotional exhaustion, empathic exhaustion. It's not just for people who work in hospitals, by the way, but I think one big insight is that empathy is not one thing, right? I think you nicely separated sort of caring for people, feeling for people versus feeling as they do. And I think a lot of us confuse empathy with feeling other people's pain. That's one part of empathy, but it's not the only part. We can also sort of experience what I would call empathic concern or compassion, feeling sort of goodwill towards others and a desire for them to feel better without drowning in their suffering. And now there are actually people sort of helping train sort of caring professionals in how to toggle or switch between types of empathy and realize that you don't have to sacrifice yourself emotionally in order to provide deep and true care to someone else. Actually, if we go back to what you were saying about empathy being a muscle that you exercise, when I look back on my career, you say beautifully in the beginning of the book that coming from divorced parents, it was like being in an empathy gym, yeah. right? You were just constantly doing the like push-ups and weightlifting of empathizing with your dad and your mom, these two people on opposite sides of the field, both of whom you needed to connect with right. for survival as a kid, mm -hmm. for emotional survival. I was also um, growing up in a divorce situation. Mm -hmm. My parents split when I was really young, oh. though, which made things weird. Yeah, I was, I think, 10 months old when my mom left my dad wow. and I, you know, and I went back and forth between my parents, but I was mostly sort of just aligned in my mom's household with my stepdad and my three older siblings who came and went. And then I got into the line of work that I did, you know, with a diversion in my teens and college through being best friends with a therapist, which, <laughs> which, which I talk about a lot. And I talk about Anthony a lot in my book. Um, and he really, uh, you really schooled me in a lot of this stuff that you and I are talking about now. When I look at my career and the fact that from the very beginning of being a rock musician, one of the hallmarks of our style as the Dresden Dolls and as me, as Amanda Palmer, is that we always stayed after every show, even if it took three hours sometimes, like longer than we played on stage. <laughs> we would sign and meet and greet people after the show. So on certain tour stops, you know, we would have a couple of openers. We would play for two and a half hours, but then we would sign from 11 till 1.30 in the morning. And describing those signing lines, you know, and I still do this. Yeah. And, I've, and, I, and to this day, whenever I can, after shows, I do this and I do events sometimes just so I can do this. But it's like running a empathetic marathon. And, you know, when you think about those people in the NICU and you think about what first responders have to go through and you think about how you're just making, you know, emotional impressions really fast and emotional connections really fast. One of the things that I learned how to do from the time that I was 27 and the Dresden Dolls were big and our music was affecting people and 
you know, I was writing about rape and abuse and, and darkness and loss and self-hatred and grief and all these things. And people were really connecting with the music on any given night. I might have 500 people connecting with me in person, touching me, looking in my eye, but also, you know, maybe 20 to 30 people telling me their rape story. Wow. Telling me about losing their partner telling me about their recent suicide attempt, telling me about their battle with self-harm, telling me about this. And and you have to understand the speed at which these signing lines go, <laughs> like really fast. So at the end of a two and a half hour period, you know, I've talked to all these people, but I've only been in a sort of a social space with them for a minute at a time, maybe. But I've taken all of that on. I've listened to their story. I've, you know, literally shed tears and then moved to the next person who were happy and chipper and handing me a copy of a, an old vinyl to sign right. saying, hey, great show. Yeah. And then two minutes later, going back to a rape story and the two minutes, reading your book and thinking about empathy as a muscle, I think, oh my God, like what that really is every night is just a heavy duty workout. Of the muscle of empathy. It's so true. And I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've thought a, a lot of, about that following you on Patreon and uh, and also, you know, <laughs> listening to your music, which obviously doesn't shy away from these really hard subjects and also is so connective. A lot of your songs are in the second person. You're talking directly to the person listening or to Judy Bloom, <laughs> um, or yeah. or to or to your friend who just had an abortion. I feel that there's this deeply, again, like connective quality to the music that you write and perform, and it invites this intimacy from your audience, and, and then you double down on that with these signing lines. And I have to ask a question that I think is probably one that may, maybe some of your fans share, which is, is that something that you learned? You, you used the word learned earlier. You said that you learned to, to do this, to, to what extent do you feel that you built that capacity that you, you have, you been working out your whole life or were you, were you born like a, like a bodybuilder basically? No, like in fact, I'm like a weird success story because while I was deeply emotional as a teenager, I was not incredibly compassionate. Mm. I was not this beloved snow white of Amanda Palmer is the kindest person in this high school. I was the opposite. Hmm. I was like the bitchy iconoclastic rabble rouser, the punk rocker who always walked down the hallway with my headphones looking like I didn't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yet I deeply, deeply wanted what I think in my heart of hearts, everyone wants, which is I deeply yearned for connection and wanted connection and wanted to feel like I was part of the tribe and wanted to feel like a comradeship with my peers and the kids in my high school. But I always felt the opposite. Mm -hmm. I felt incredibly lonely, isolated. I was bullied and I was bullied in a way that I really brushed off because I was... I was sort of the freaky punk kid and I wasn't one of the popular kids. So right. when people yelled at me in the hall, it was, you know, hey, you're a drug addict lesbian. Look at her go. Look at her weird clothes. Look at her weird <laughs> hair. And I would stand on the other side with my middle finger in the air going, fuck you. You're just, you know, you're just jealous of me because I'm so cool. Right. And I understand what it means to have Doc Martens <laughs> and you don't. 
You know, the desire we all had to be connected with each other is so obvious, and our tools and our ability so lacking. <laughs> like, <laughs> One comparison would be to sex, right? We all want it, but we have no fucking clue when we're 13 how to do it. So we just kind right. of fumble at each other um, and, <laughs> and, and just um, do our best. I was very, very into music, obviously. I was a songwriter and I was a teenager. And then, you know, I didn't ever really realize consciously that being a musician was going to sort of be a gateway into the professional job and gestures of like an empathetic leader. Mm-hmm. The same way people saying, hey, I think I will go into this kind of oncology might not be prepared that a huge part of their job is going to be breaking the news to family that their loved ones are dying. When you look at the job description when you're in med school, I don't know if people are necessarily going, you know, I'm really empathetic. I think I'll go into oncology because I can really talk to people about cancer and make them feel okay. I think it depends in a way on what caring profession you go into. You know, my, my wife is a therapist and um, a lot of my friends are therapists or social workers. And those folks are often drawn to their calling by this outsized sense that they want to care for people or that they all always have and they just want to do it professionally. But it's interesting because the same things that draw them to that work, the same kind of magnetic qualities turn into occupational hazards once they're actually on the ground and inundated with other people's pain. There's a great passage in the book where you talk about these two photographers, Mm. journalistic photographers on the front lines of capturing human pain and how they have really different approaches to work and how they compartmentalize. I would love for you to explain that story, but I also, I looked at that and their two approaches and I was like, oh, right, I could look at my musician friends through those same lenses and my writer friends, the friends who make art and whether they choose approach A or approach B. It's a choice that we make constantly and has a lot of repercussions. I write about these two photographers, Ron Haviv and Ed Kashi. They're both sort of photojournalists who work both on the front lines, but also in other places of deep loss and, and tragedies. Ed, for instance, did a whole photographic series on death and dying in, in America, where he photographed people you know, in their last moments of life. Ron does more sort of classic war photography, but you know, the photo that I really gravitated towards of his, of a baby who had died tragically sort of amidst this international turmoil, and there's washing this um, child's body for funeral purposes. And gosh, I mean, both, you know, I focused on that image from Ron and one from Ed that is actually of another person who's dying but is about 100 years old, right? And so they're obviously quite different images, but both have a lot of sadness in them. And I asked these photographers, what, you know, what do you do? How do you deal with being around this intense emotion? And they gave me completely opposite answers. And they're both wonderful and caring and connected people. Ron, the person who took this photograph of of the 
child said, you know, when I'm in those incredibly emotional moments, I have a job to do. I need to be detached in order to serve other people and their needs. In order to get their stories out, I need to not bring myself into it too much. Mm. And he said, I, I'll, I'll never forget, he said, you know, when I get back to the hotel room, I can cry. And it was almost, oh. the, the thing that was striking to me was that he was almost giving himself permission, which meant that he was not giving himself permission. I, f- I felt this very, real sternness right. that he had towards his own feelings. Whereas Ed sort of said, I- I'm like a social worker. Ed, Ed goes for the instant gratification. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. He, the, you know, the, the picture that he took um, is again of this very elderly woman who's about to die with her husband. Um, and they had been sleeping side by side, her in a hospital bed that they had wheeled into their West Virginia home and him mm-hmm. in a cot next to the bed. And they had been sleeping like that for months. And the night that she died, Ed, the photographer, slept in the cot and he, the husband, moved to the bed where the wife had been sleeping. Right. So, I mean, talk about intimacy, oh. right? He was part of the story. He made, he allowed himself to be part of the story. And I think that medicine and art and any profession, shit, any experience where we're connecting with someone, we all kind of make that choice. Whether we make that choice, do I need to take myself out of this in order to function, in order to serve or not? This is going to be a beautiful transition to talking about art. Mm. What a like almost stock metaphor for how we deal with this as artists, right? If you're if you're holding the camera and you're crying too much, you're literally not clear-eyed enough to get a focused image for everybody else. Oh, I love that. You need to I mean, Ron, I need to write this book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ron actually said something like this to me. He didn't say it exactly this dramatically, but let me embellish a little bit. He, in essence, said, if I'm crying, I won't be able to generate an image that makes you cry. Right. And But that's, that's it. And that's actually what I've been feeling on this particular tour that I'm on. Mm. So this t- this tour that I'm doing right now is the most... It's the most permission I've ever given myself to be wet-eyed on stage. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing in the script that says, Amanda, during the song, you're going to cry. During the story, you're going to cry. When you get to this point in the show, you're going to cry. This is where the audience is going to cry. There's none of that. But I give myself full permission across this show, which is, by the way, a three and a half hour show, wow. to be as openly tearful as I want to. And yet, just like the photographer, I always have my hand on a dial. Mm. I know how emotional I can allow myself to be and up to what point until I hit the point where I'm not actually going to be of use to those people in the audience. Mm. And there is a point. And what's so kind of creepy (laughs) when you think about it is how clinical I can almost be about expressing my emotion. Even within a song, I know that if I get too emotional, 
my voice will freeze. Right. It will crack. Right. I literally won't be able to deliver that sung line. But if I allow myself to feel just enough emotion and to cry just to the point where I can still deliver the song. And in this case, sometimes I stumble, sometimes I lose it on stage. There have been a few moments in my career where I've literally stopped songs and just needed to sit there in silence right. for a second and collect myself. And luckily, I have a really forgiving audience who will sit with anything. But again, it's this reminder that like these are learned psychological exercises almost where if this had only happened to me once in my life, I would really be out there like up Shit's Creek without a paddle. <laughs> but because I've been training every night to keep my hand on that dial and know that if I'm at 35%, that's different than 39 and different from 71 and a half. Right. It's kind of fascinating. And it brings up empathy and art, which you talk about so gorgeously in the book. Even just talking about this stage stuff, you know, the first thing that comes to mind to me and to you probably and anyone else who's thinking along these lines is actors, right. method actors. What do they do? How do they cry? How do they know? How do they control it? If there are Olympic medals <laughs> for knowing exactly the tenths of percentages of that dial, it is these, you know, Academy Award winning actors who in the midst of weather and makeup falling off and costumes not fitting and directors yelling and this, that, can still find a way to go there and to truly empathize with the character that they are embodying and deliver so that we, the audience, can feel. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I write about acting in particular as empathy's extreme sport in a way, because especially method acting requires people to, well, I would say to practice empathy in at multiple angles. I mean, you put it perfectly that, you know, irrespective of what's happening and the weather and their makeup and how many lights are on them <laughs> that that and how, or how many takes they've already done yes yes <laughs> and how artificial the scene they they know the scene looks from their vantage point they need to nonetheless live an intimate or beautiful or horrific moment with absolute fervor and absolute commitment and that requires sort of this you called it the heart's imagination that's exactly what it is it's a it's a it's a collaboration between our creative capacity our capacity to project ourselves anywhere and to imagine mm. and our most visceral responses to real things that have happened to us right it's it's that sort of amalgamation of the imagined and the very, very real that actors need to embody. There's another part, though, Amanda, to what you described that I think is also part of why art is such a, it's almost like a performance-enhancing drug for empathy as well, right? Because in order for you to know how to adjust your emotions from 35% to 39%, you need to know exactly what 35% feels like to you and what 39% feels like to you. But you also need to know what those look like to your audience and how each one of those levels will change their experience. And I think that's part of why I think of producing art as so strenuous empathically is because it's really two types of empathy at once. It's a control over what you're feeling 
with an eye towards how what you're feeling looks and feels to somebody else. It's sort of layers upon layers. And you took your machete. You said, Ooh, guess who, but seriously, beauty. You said, So here's something that I'd love to tell you about that was the biggest struggle artistically and emotionally of my teenage years and following me into my twenties, but mostly in my teenage years. And I even, I have a great old journal entry that I must've done when I was 15 or 16. I, I, you know, I had kind of a sketchbook journal ongoing in, in in a bunch of tattered composition books that I still go back and look at occasionally. I think I called it the the evil crying cycle. Hmm. I was disturbed and obsessed by the idea of authenticity when I was a teenager. Is what I'm feeling really real? Is it really real? Or am I doing it to look cool? Or am I doing it to get attention? Or am I doing it to get a rise out of someone like what, what's real here? I don't get it. And I made this little drawing where I'm crying about something sad. And then all of a sudden I'm conscious of the fact that I'm crying. And I wonder what my crying looks like to someone who might be watching me. And then I feel inauthentic because I feel like I'm performing crying for that person looking which in turn makes me cry because I feel so much shame. Hmm. But then I feel even more because if I'm crying harder, but it's not authentic. (laughs) And it it just like, (laughs) it just goes into this spiral of anger, shame, (laughs) self-doubt and performativeness. And when I was 15 or 16, I couldn't think my way out of there. I was just like, I'm fucked. (sighs) No matter what I feel or no matter what emotions come up, I'm a phony because I'm always going to be wondering how they look. And little did I know that at least my ability to be having thoughts like that at 16 were kind of the the escape hatch out of there to be able to realize like well yeah it is it is authentic. And then yeah, you you are wondering how this looks from the outside. Those are the same tools, little Amanda, that are going to make it possible for you to be a performer because you're going to you're going to be holding those two thoughts at the same time. The one who's crying and then the one who's able to see through the camera with clear eyes. And it it caused me so much grief and agony as a teenager, but when I look at it now, all of that that grief and that self-hatred and all of those sketches, like all of that really galvanized me to be able to do this weird job. I love that story. I have so much to say about it. Do, do you mind if I share a story of Oh my, my God, go on and on and uh, on. Um, this uh, is my pa- <laughs> this is my podcast, so we can talk for four hours. I have like a million <laughs> things to say about this. I resonate so much with that feeling, Amanda. I mean, as as you know, you know, I opened the the book by talking about how empathy was a survival skill for me amidst really a, a super long and bitter divorce between my parents. They started not when I was ten months, like like your parents did with you, but um, for me, it was when they were 
when I was eight, but they didn't finish until I was 12. And, and, and two other things really made that time, that four-year stretch really, well, a bunch of things made it hard, frankly, but two things pop out. One, you know, unlike you, I'm an only child, so I was the only kind of bridge between my parents' worlds, and I didn't have anyone to commiserate with. You know, I think having siblings during... Uh, parents divorce can be good because you can kind of look at them and be like, did you just see that? <laughs> are you fucking here? Are you hearing this? Right, right, um, right. You have an ally and a witness. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but also because my parents are culturally super different from each other. My dad's from Pakistan and my mom's from Peru. And it's not just like their families are from there, like they're from there. They moved here when they were 25. Their worldviews were so far apart. And I just felt... You know, like I was the only one charged with understanding both of them. And the only thing at stake was like my entire fucking life. Right. So it's like, okay. (laughs) I mean, you had said earlier, like, oh, yeah. So you were in this empathy gym doing push ups and lifting weights and stuff. I would say, and I do use that term in empathy gym, it was more like empathic forced labor in a way. I mean, I was, I was fucking breaking rocks and trying to generate a shelter, you know, like I was in, I I got in shape, not by going, not by casually choosing to empathize, but by being forced into it. But, you know, as I was was talking about that experience recently, one of the audience members sort of said, okay, great. So you got really good at understanding their different perspectives and sort of adapting to their worlds. But how did you know who you were in all of that. Mm. I kind of said, well, let me talk to my therapist about that. <laughs> because <laughs> I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, I've been troubled by that. Childhood experience made me who I am. And in, in the same way as you, as you describe, equipped me with the tools for understanding people and being fascinated by people and kind of mm. getting them. It also, yeah, made me feel sometimes adrift in terms of what is authentic, what is what is real. Um, you know, I've studied this I, 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 because I think that's true somewhat of all of us. I don't think it's just you and me. I think we all perform and are aware in a way of our performance and sabotaged by that awareness. I ran this study um, with one of my students where we had people look at emotional images and sometimes they thought that a camera was on them and sometimes wow. they didn't. And we found... And would they, would they act for the camera? They all act, right? <laughs> We're all yeah. actors. And, you know, so people reported that they didn't feel any more strong emotions when the camera was on versus when it was off. But yeah. they posed stronger emotions. They made more vivid and intense facial expressions. This gets back to why human beings, early human beings, Homo sapiens, beat out you know other primates and and, and you know there there was a competition on right yeah. like who's going to survive, who's going to make it, and I'd love for you to talk about how our facial expressions and ability to read one another handed us the trophy because <laughs> that's amazing and is connected directly to the study you were just talking about. Yeah, I think so. And to this struggle that you and I and lots of people have gone through with whether we're being authentic when we perform emotions for others or adapt to their feelings, right? I mean, 
I think yeah. that the idea that there is some you in there that's separate from everyone else and that that's the only true you. And if you ever sort of diverge from that, you're being fake or you're losing your identity. That is such a Western concept and it is such a modern concept. Explain from the perspective of science, research and history what it was about early Homo sapiens and our capabilities empathetically that led us to where we are now. Back in the day, let's say, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago, we were, we were in the environment that would turn us into who we are now as a species. Around 60,000 years ago, there was no clear evidence that people were going to dominate the planet, right? We were just medium-sized mammals. We were not particularly fast or strong. We didn't have sharp teeth or claws. We could have fly. And there were like at least five other human species with large brains who were pretty intelligent sharing the planet with us. The thing about Homo sapiens that made us special was that we had each other. Right? We were these little, almost helpless beings individually, but we huddled Oh my up. God, right when you say we had each other, we need to insert some really good emotional string music. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had each other, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we huddled in the dark and kept each other warm and we worked together. We, and, and it was that capacity to collaborate that both shaped us and allowed us to shape the planet, right? To, to, to take over, to, to succeed and flourish. That success is rooted not in the idea that we're each individuals and that our true self resides inside our body, but rather in the idea that we and our minds and our emotions are distributed things things that stretch out beyond us and into the lives and brains and experiences of the people we care about and are connected to. And so we perform for them and we read them and we obsess over them and what they think of us. And then add to that, that validation from your group comes when you act more angrily maybe than you feel. Well, guess what? You're going to perform that outrage. You're going to perform that even hatred, and pretty soon that performance will become who you are. There's our exercise metaphor again, um, yeah. because if you're performing outrage and hatred, whether you're on the left or the right or wherever, and you're and you're being rewarded for it, who's to say where the line of performativeness is crossing into, you know, quote unquote, reality? Yeah, I definitely learned some really important and valuable lessons about compassion and empathy when I was on the earlier days of the internet. And I was much less kind. I cringe to, you know, to go back to some of my early tweets from 2007 or eight or whenever I joined Twitter. But before I really understood the human cost of saying something nasty, and even, you know, and something nasty could even be, oh, I don't really like so-and-so's work. You know, they're not for me. Right. And in a sense, anyone using social media, especially if you did not grow up digital native as we did not, or, you know, people my age and in their 40s did not. We had to learn again, like how to twist the dial from mm. what we would say, you know, among a group of four or five friends 
to what we would say to 40, 400, 4,000, 40,000 people on Twitter. Right. And learning how the etiquette of, you know, this new civilization was going to play out. And also choosing, you know, as I did, to not be an angry, outraged person who was going to go viral by being obnoxious, <laughs> but, but to try and actually do what I learned how to do in those days, which is to do a kind of a like empathetic internet jujitsu, which I literally have been doing in the last four days as, you know, as I tweet about my abortions and people yeah. from all over the earth show up to tell me that I'm a killer and a murderer yep. and I'm going to hell and how sad it is that my child doesn't have siblings because I aborted them all. And, and I'm yeah. actually able, because I've practiced so much, <laughs> I'm actually able to write back to that person and say like, yeah, no, you know, my child doesn't have siblings right now, but, um, how kind of you to care about my kid <laughs> <laughs> and, and all my, and all my love to your family. And I mean it. Because I know that yeah. somewhere underneath all of your outrage and hatred and obnoxiousness, there is an empathetic, beautiful person under there. And I have become so inoculated against your particular fear, words, insults, whatever, because I've just been through it so right. many times and it just doesn't hurt me. I'm able to reach out and uh, with no anger and no charge. You know, what you actually do kind of want to hear, but you're saying you don't, which is like, I feel your concern. Because why else would you be talking to me if you weren't concerned? It's a beautiful capacity that you've developed. And I, I want to underscore what you're saying is very mobilist. You developed it, right? You developed it in part by suffering through a lot of these types of attacks and surviving them and growing through them. And in fact, I, I write about in, in the book, if trauma is is one thing that often sort of increases our empathic capacity. People who have suffered a lot oftentimes are the most tuned in to others. Um, yeah, you say you in know. the book, there's a kind of altruism born of suffering. It, it really feels very true. The more shit you go through, the more available you are to people in the dark um, because you recognize the dark. You've been in it. You know, you, you, you know what it feels like to grope around in there and, and try to find the light switch. And you recognize when other people are doing it. In that same chapter, you, you talk about the generosity of people who have been through trauma. And I see that so much in my own community. It is often the most the most war-torn, emotionally scarred people in my community, my own community, my community of friends, the, my internet community, you know, all over the place. Those seem to be the people who, when they come out the other side, come out with the sharpest tools to help the people who are a few steps behind them. Perfectly put. And suffering of that type is a tectonic shift in your life, right? I mean, it changes who you are. And we hear so much about PTSD and for good reason. I mean, it is a devastating force in people's lives, but we hear less about an equally real phenomenon of post-traumatic growth and the great evidence that people who 
undergo trauma oftentimes end up with new capacities as a result, including a deep capacity to resonate with the pain and suffering of others and a deep desire to help people who have been through what they have been through. You know, I mean, people, mm-hmm. you know, have suffered from addiction, oftentimes become addiction counselors. Yeah. People who have been assaulted become assault counselors. You know, th- this is a, a huge and very common thing where people who suffer trauma will change the trajectory of their life to help others who are going through similar things. Yeah, not to mention millions of people out there uh, being sponsors in in programs like AA and NA. Exactly. Because they know. Exactly. They can empathize. Yeah. They speak the language. There's a beautiful TED Talk by Andrew Solomon called, I forget the exact title of the TED Talk, but I think it's the the worst moments of our life make us who we are. Mm. It's a gorgeous TED Talk. I'll send it to you if you haven't seen it. He was brutally psychologically punished by his family for being gay yeah. uh, in some unspeakable ways. And he talks about building identity around our traumas and forging meaning. I know this is going to speak to a lot of people in my community because there are a lot of people in my community who have just dealt with so much shit with their families, especially. And it is so important in these moments, too, that we not identify so hard as victims of circumstance that we wind up in the wrong pile, <laughs> that, we, yeah. that we wind up really being victims of circumstance instead of allowing circumstance to forge us. Knowing how to do that, that's really the, the, the difficult pivot is like, okay, well, we can say this, we can talk about it, but like, how the fuck do I do that? <laughs> You know, easy for you to say. You sound like you're having a great day, Amanda. Like I'm trying to deal with 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 surviving a, a rape. How do I yep. how do I get from how do I walk from here to there? And what I actually find so fascinating about AA, I've never been through AA, but I've read quite a bit about it, and I have a lot of sober friends. One of the key ingredients in statistically staying sober is helping others. There are choices that we make. One of them around accepting help from others, mm. right? I mean, shoot, you talk about, you talk a lot about how to ask and how to be comfortable asking and how to understand that we're in this together. Uh, one of the hardest things to do after trauma, but one of the most important is to learn to disclose and to be vulnerable again, uh, oftentimes because your vulnerability has been so deeply violated, but mm some vulnerability, especially the emotional type, is often the fastest way to, one of the fastest paths to recovery, right, is to get help from others. Now, when we turn around and are able to help somebody, that in turn helps us in so many ways. I mean, and it's not just in the context of trauma, by the way. There's this fascinating paper um, called Giving Time Gives You Time. It's one of my favorite recent studies. And it's it's about this sense that we all, that many of us have these days, which is that we're just too fucking stressed to help anybody else. You know, it's just like, there's so much happening in our lives. And it feels as though if I stop and do something for somebody else, then my capacity to do what I need to do will be diminished. And I'm already overwhelmed. Yeah. So I'll be necessarily even more overwhelmed. Right. And in this set of studies, these psychologists found that's exactly what people think. Mm -hmm. They think that helping others will 
take away from themselves and their ability to get things done or to feel like they have time for themselves. The opposite is true when they actually are forced to help other people, <laughs> right? They, they, because they, they actually end up feeling like, gosh, I have more time than I did before after helping this other person. How could that be true? That seems paradoxical. But helping others shows us something about ourselves, right? Because it, it's, it's almost like, hey, if I'm strong enough to carry someone else, I must be super strong enough to walk on my own. Mm. Right. I, I must have the agency and the power to be doing all right myself because helping other people shows that I'm beyond that. I'm not just surviving. I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing something that goes beyond surviving. Well, I want to talk about one one last thing. I would love to talk about this poem that I'm about to put out and the and the poem that I wrote six years ago to the week. And I'd love some insight from you about everything that happened, because there's so many things to unpack here. So the Boston bombing happened and I was in town. Um, right. It happened only a few blocks from my apartment. And Neil and I were actually renting an extra place um, because I needed to be in town to take my best friend, Anthony, to chemo. So we just, we were just living in this strange liminal space. The day that the bombing happened, all I did was I sat in terror in my kitchen and I just kept refreshing Twitter mm. and talking with people and answering every single comment. And up until that point in time, this was 2013, I didn't know that Twitter had a tweet limit. You know, I forget what it was, but it was something like a hundred tweets every 30 minutes or something. And I, and I kept hitting it. <laughs> wow. You know, there was a ban on going outside. So my first instinct when this happened was, I wanna get my whole community together. Let's go to the Boston Common. Let's go to Cambridge Common. Let's all, Let's all be together and look at each other and go, how the fuck did this happen? You know, there's blood on our blood on the streets and hmm. this has never happened to us before. We need to be, we need to be together. That's everyone's instinct. Right. Is let, let's get off the internet and let's gather. You see it all the time. You saw it the other day in front of Notre Dame. Like that's what we do as a tribe. Yes. But the police were telling everyone in Boston and Cambridge, do not leave your homes. We're looking for a killer. There is a citywide lockdown. And it was the creepiest thing you've ever seen because there were no cars on the streets. It was just like the city went silent. It was, a, it was some Mad Max shit. <laughs> and so wow. there I was, you know, in my kitchen, just tweeting every piece of news, every image, every crying, scared person in Boston and Watertown and Cambridge and Newton and Lexington and Massachusetts and New York. And like, it was, it was what I could do, you know, and, and I was right there and I felt like I, I could use my Twitter platform and my mil, you know, my million followers to, to create a gathering space, like some kind of weird virtual, town square where we could look at each other and say, this is, this is scary. We're scared. And that is actually the mind frame that I was still in a couple days later when the lockdown ended and 
you know, Neil and I had, against the warnings of the cops, driven down to New York for a gig that we were supposed to do and driven back. And I sat down in this cafe bookstore and I banged out this, you know, stream of consciousness poem. We had had problems with our GPS, trying to find a way to get to New York because streets were locked down. He had had a, you know, he was trying to escape to New York after carrying out this horrific mass murder. I couldn't imagine what his relationship with his parents were like, his family, his community, the blood he had on his hands, Mm. all of this stuff. And then the fact that I was just sitting there in my privilege, safe in this coffee shop, you know, eating a fresh roll. (laughs) And it was all, (laughs) it all just came together in this spurt of inspiration. I put this poem out. I even showed it to Neil and I was like, are people going to yell at me about this? And he was like, nah, you're fine. (laughs) And then, (laughs) you know, and then the death threats came into my website. Jesus. And what was most frightening, and I talk about this in my stage show, and you'll understand this, and having just read your book, it's really, I wasn't shocked to get yelled at by the right wing who said, Amanda Palmer is this terrible narcissist, awful poet, terrorist sympathizer, you know, and while we're at it, look at these photos of her and her hairy, her hairy armpits and her, like, who would want to fuck her face and, and everything that came along with it. It was 2013. I had been through some shit, Jamil. Like, I, I knew from <laughs> internet hate, and that was not that hard to stomach. In a sense, I could almost wear it as a badge of honor. Like, aha, I stood up and said something about empathy, and look, the right wing is yelling at me like they're supposed to. But what I wasn't expecting and what really upended me to my core was the left wing and the Boston journalists, my tribe, my people, turning around and saying, Amanda, we, we, we get it. We know that you believe in compassion and empathy and all that, and that's great, but you've crossed a line. There are people mm-hmm. with whom we do not empathize. And this is in really poor taste. You're being so insensitive to the victims. You're being so insensitive to our city. How could you suggest that we fucking empathize with this kid? And it was like my entire worldview collapsed. Because I just blithely assumed that all these people, you know, my lefty liberal friends... Of course they would think like me. But actually looking back, I'm I'm really glad it happened. Was all of these people, when this all happened and a bunch of Boston blogs and newspapers were like, oh my God, fuck Amanda Palmer, you've got to be kidding. I got all of this private support, mm. which was really double-sided, right? To get all of these text messages and Twitter DMs from people in Boston saying, Oh my God, man, Amanda, you're really going through it. But just so you know, I, I'm with you. I'm on your side and I get this. I just can't stick my neck out and say that in public. I will get Mm. slaughtered. And a lot of it was also about timing. And this is what I think is really interesting psychologically. And also why I'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen six years on when these wounds are, you know, in Boston, the wound still bleeds, but it's it's been cauterized over time. Hmm. And I mean, I was publishing this poem and putting this suggestion 
that we empathize with this 17-year-old kid out four or five days after this bombing happened. And the wound was incredibly fresh. And I think if a lot of people took issue with me, it wasn't necessarily that they were carrying signs saying empathy is bad, fuck empathy. But, you know, the, this is too soon. And I still look back at that and I wouldn't change it. I would double down on it. I would say it, it is in these moments, especially now that we're living in a culture of shooting after shooting and terrorist attack after terrorist attack, that we have to do that thing where we're on both sides of the camera. And we have to be able to imagine ourselves into every corner if we are going to find the escape door out of this madness. And that's really what I believe. There are so many reverberations of what you went through in our culture today. And this is really the fundamental struggle of modern empathy because it's in crisis. You know, we've talked about some of the ways that our emotions are adapted to the ancient world and not the modern world. And, and one thing that is really, one, one barrier that really makes empathy hard is a feeling of threat. If you are under threat, it's extremely, at least in our ancient past would have been dangerous to empathize with whoever was on the other side because that threat was a mortal threat, right? I mean, uh, uh, I would say that a linebacker would be ill-served by feeling the pain of a running back, but a soldier who felt the pain of an enemy would be, uh, would, would be risking their life. And we are not actively, you know, most of us in war zones right now. And yet, Parts of our culture, including the way that things are on the internet, make us feel like we're at war all the time. And that empathizing with someone on the other side is a betrayal. It's treasonous because it's putting our side in a position of weakness at a moment when that weakness could lead to our deaths. And you know that's why empathizing with somebody who has actually generated real danger and harm is such a high wire act. You know, I, I think about Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, yeah. right? This, this book about these people who just brutally go into a, a family home and, and slaughter everyone there. And yet Capote makes us humanize the killers which was such a dangerous thing to do. And all the, he, he received enormous amounts of blowback for, um, for, for being a sympathizer. You were called the terrorist sympathizer. What an interesting <laughs> term because it actually pathologizes something that's so fundamental to who we are. And yet it's not giving up the game to empathize with people on the other side. It's not even giving up the game to empathize with people who have committed atrocities, it's fundamental to maybe having a shot at bringing some of them back into the human species. My friend Dylan Marin has this amazing podcast uh, that I just did called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Mm -hmm. um, you should check it out. It's amazing. And he has a great refrain that empathy is not endorsement. Yes, 
And I found myself saying this again and again and again. I was like, do you guys realize that there is a difference? (laughs) There is a difference between feeling compassion and empathy and the logic of, yes, of course, this person has to go to prison. What do you think? I'm fucking nuts. Yeah. And in a sense, you know, it's almost like if we, again, if we don't empathize with the darkest hearts, sort of like, like I'm going to say in this poem, it is a small minded failure of imagination that keeps us out of progress and evolution as a species. We are so enormously connected to each other in ways that were unimaginable 20, 30 years ago. That is probably the greatest empathic opportunity in our species history. And yet it's also a fundamental risk to our humanity because we have these old-fashioned emotions mixing with newfangled technologies, and the two aren't fitting together very well right now. One of the things that I think is so crucial for us to understand is that it doesn't have to be that way, right? We have the capacity to work with our emotions. We often think of them as kind of tempests that just take us over and that we can't do anything about. If I, if someone's trolling me on Twitter, there's nothing I can do except be outraged. If I hear about a statistic of people affected by a war, there's nothing that I can do to feel what I would feel if I was looking at an image of a child washed ashore. Mm. But there is, we have a vast capacity to change and regulate and tweak and choose our emotions in real time. And I, I think one of the things that I really want people to understand is that you can cultivate a curiosity even as you're being overwhelmed with outrage or even as you're being underwhelmed by your lack of empathy or compassion or feeling. You can become curious about why that's happening, whether that's what you want to happen. And if you decide that you want to make a change to your emotional life in the moment, or in the long term, you have that power. This organization called Mass Poetry got in touch with me and Neil and asked if if we would come read at a benefit. You know, this is a theater in Boston that fits... 800 people. And it's uh, three blocks from the finish line where where the Boston Marathon bombing happened. Wow. And I thought, oh my God, I've sort of had a follow up poem in my head for years. If I don't write it now, (laughs) given this opportunity to actually deliver it to in real time to, to these people in Boston, I don't know when I'll ever write it. Wow. And so originally Neil and I were supposed to read each other's poems, but the day of the, the day of the event, I read Neil the poem and he looked at me and he was like, I'm I'm not supposed to read that. Mm. You're, you you know, that's, um, that's all you, Amanda. And I was so scared to read it that I printed out a backup poem and I didn't decide to read the poem until about 10 minutes before wow. <laughs> beforehand on stage. That's how afraid I was of feeling the, you know, the ire and 
and and criticism of my my fellow Bostonians. What was really incredible about that night is that luckily Neil and I were put last on the bill. And there were, mm. I don't know, 18 other readers before us on this night at the Huntington Theater and beautiful night honoring the power of poetry and change. And people were reading poems by, you know, Maya Angelou and Langston Hughes and and just like the the feeling of empathy and possibility in that room was electric. Mm. And I st- and then I wound up standing on the shoulders of every reader who came before me. And the I mean in the themes by the time I read this poem that I'm about to read you, the themes were just ripe and everywhere there there'd been so much discussion of 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 empathy and imagination and putting ourselves in other people's shoes and the medicine of art and there was even you know what the, the reader before me was an actual doctor who talked about feeling empathy in in hospitals for his patients and i was like this has just been so set up it's not even funny <laughs> wow wow but also a real testament to the power of you know what we are able to tribally do for each other and how we can infect and uplift each other with art, with poetry, with music, with the spoken word, with these, with these risks of imagination and expression that make us all feel a little less crazy, which, you know, at its best is what art can do. And by the time it got to me and it was the end of the night, I was, I was not only ready to read this poem, I was like, I was excited. <laughs> mm. So here it is. It was originally going to be called Poem for Poem for Jahar, but um, <laughs> Neil suggested that that was, that was too ambitious. So it, it's just called Empathy is Nothing. Empathy is nothing but the heart's imagination, the strange creative act of a surgeon stepping into patient, the uncomfortable trying on of shoes that won't slip on, or a burqa, or fatigues, or a backpack with a bomb. But the heart's imagination has its limits, I am told. We're all one with rare exceptions. We have standards to uphold. We are strong, we are unflappable, we won't be taken down, and we won't be made to feel afraid by folks from out of town. But what if they are we and us, and what if us is them? What if we can't separate so easily? What then? There are limits to compassion. You don't humanize a monster. But it isn't going to change, my friends until we can feel farther, until we can gauge suffering on both sides of the slaughter, until you walk a mile in the heels of every daughter, the assaulted and the rapist and the worst we have to offer. And thus our hearts are put to task. The patient dons the surgeon's mask. Ready, set, and on your marks. A climate of fear, a race through the dark. A climate of change, the gun bangs. And we stop. There's a crack in everything, remember. And the finish line is lost from sight. And some are running to the left, and some are running to the right. And they are running for survival, and they are running for their life. 
and the heart's imagination is exhausted by the task. And every hill is heartbreaking, mm -hmm. and everyone runs past the lawless and the legless and the bastards with the bombs, and I can see my child and my mother falling down. And some are running to the left and some are running to the right on platforms of austerity and keeping borders tight. And I think that Jesus said it, but then again, I'm not so certain. Love your enemies is open to a new interpretation. Love the ones that you can manage is a more prudent expectation. And the teenage boy who's bleeding in the bottom of the boat, we must admit to there, the heart's imagination will not go. There's a limit to forgiveness. There's a limit to compassion and to love, to coexisting and to peace and understanding. It's the most dangerous of recent acts to ban where hearts can go. It is a different kind of war, a kind of terrorism of the soul. What I want to say, I cannot say. And some are running to the left and some are running to the right, but are we running towards the dark or are we running towards the light? What I want to say, I cannot say. What I want to say is treason. What I want to say is that we've won the race against all reason. What I want to say is that we've won the battle against feeling. Stand your ground. Do not fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. We are strong. We are unflappable. We won't be taken down and we won't be made to feel afraid by these folks from out of town. And some are running to the left and some are running to the right and some are raising up a wall. Some get shot off that wall by night. What I want to say is harder. What I want to say goes farther. What I want to say is that we will stay crippled in the darkness if we cannot feel compassion for the heart that is the darkest. For the hearts that turn to darkness all have crucial tales to tell, and we would sooner cut our ears off than to sit and listen well. Empathy is nothing but the heart's imagination. You can choose to love your enemies, or you can choose to hate them. You can choose to love your enemies. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. Let it begin here. Wow. Uh, that is breathtaking, Amanda. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I have so much to say. Do, is, is there something that, that you want to talk about or, or should I just no, respond? No, just that, just that as I read your book, having just written this poem, uh, they were like waltzing partners. They are know? companion it, pieces. It, I mean, they're exactly aligned. Uh, it's uncanny. Um, and I think that what you're capturing is so real. I mean, just the just the the way that our empathy is stretched these days, and the capacity to understand who's on the other side is exhausting, but also feels in a way like a betrayal of the people on our side. Right. 
empathy is the heart's imagination, but it's so tiring right now for so many reasons. And it's not just tiring for the person feeling it. It seems dangerous to the people around us. It seems like a like caring about someone on the other side is a betrayal of our own side. And, you know, I think there are lots of reasons that that's true. But God, if we accept that, we're fucked. You know, we're in a lot right. of trouble. That is breathtaking, Amanda. It is. Oh my God. I I, <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like that's almost the poem equivalent of everything that I've been trying to say for a really long time. Um, this is such a moment of pain, but if we give into it, we will have lost something that is greater than any fight between tribes or between groups. This has been the Art of Asking Everything podcast. Thanks to my special guest, Jamil Zaki. You should get and read his book, The War for Kindness, right now. It is so good. The engineers for this interview were Robert Raymond and Jimmy Garver. The theme song that you were listening to is my own. It's the instrumental to a song called Bottom Theater from my 2012 album, Theater is Evil. Many, many thanks to my team AFP, Haley, Michael, Jordan, and Alex, who are always working behind the scenes to make everything happen. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. And this whole podcast would not be possible without all of my patrons, 15,000 of them, who are making it possible for this podcast to exist with no ads, no sponsors, no censorship, just beautiful, unfiltered, unfettered everythingness. So please go to the Patreon, become a member, and support me and my team in making and doing all of this stuff. Patrons also get access to a book club, and they also get access to a follow-up live chat with almost every guest. Signing off, I am Amanda fucking Palmer. Please keep on asking everything. <laughs>